Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello. I'm back. Live. I'm back. I'm live. Which is Whiskey and Wit. My name is Jason, and I'm the host of this here podcast, whatever sort of thing that we're doing. I hope you're doing well. It is early December as we're recording this. I know that a lot of you listen through podcasts, so you can hear it like any time, you know. So, I mean, the date doesn't really have a whole lot to do with anything. So, it is about day 280 or something of lockdown. I hope that you're doing much better with it than I am. The COVID thing is scary. It's not going away. It's getting louder. It's getting more difficult. It is not fun. It is not good. I hope that you're taking care of yourselves. I know I'm about to go a little, I don't know, I don't want to say crazy. It just doesn't sound right, but it's it's depressing and it's hard. And I hope that you're doing all right. In book news, my latest book, Llewellyn's Little Book of Yule, is out. It came out in September, but I felt stupid about it, at least after Halloween. I hope that you'll consider picking it up. It's all about Yule, and we need a little cheeriness and a little happiness right now, probably more so than any other time of year. So tonight I have a special guest, and I'm excited I'm excited to have him on because he's the only person that I know who has, like, directed and written a movie called Dark of Moon, which is, like, the only pagan movie, I think, ever in existence. Certainly it might be the only movie that name checks Doreen Valiente and Gerald Gardner. So, you know, it's like nothing else in the history of cinema. Uh, so I love it for that reason. Taliesin is also the only other person that I know who has been called, like, a better speaker at a festival than I am, which I am a little upset by it because how could how dare anyone think that? But it's also it makes me feel like we're sort of brothers in this weird sort of way because I've never heard anybody else complimented like. So, are you with me right now? You should be live. I I I am here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. It sounds good. Excellent, excellent. Am I Taliesin? Right? Am I saying correctly? The the proper way to pronounce it is Taliesin. I chose the name back, you know. Oh, God, whenever DJ Conway's Celtic Magic came out, back around 90, 91, and I had no idea how to pronounce Welsh, so I always called it Taliesin, and that's what my wife calls me. Uh, I know that my Druid friends call me Tal, but, uh, you know, just as long as you don't call me anything really insulting, like, you know, I don't know, a fan of the new Wicker Man movie, I'm pretty much okay. The bees, the bees, not the bees. I I think of Not you as towel. I think of you as towel in my head. So that's probably right. what I'm going to use. I'm always like scared to death that I'm going to mispronounce people's names. And I know that when I first met you, you were not introduced to me as Taliesin. However, when Gwian Raven, my friend, was telling the Taliesin story and you know he is he's english and loves to put, take his accent and get it out of the closet when he's talking in front of pagans you know he said taliesin so i'm like <laughs> well that must be how you say it um yeah so i'm really confused and 
you know, how, and this is, you know, how terrible I am at my podcast. How do you say your last name so I don't fuck that up, too? Govanon. Govanon. Because it could, you know, it could yeah. be Govanon. It could be. It could be. But again, I am an Ohio boy. I was born and raised in Northeast Ohio. So we have unique ways of pronouncing certain things. <laughs> you know, I was a it's not it's not like Michigan is that far from Ohio. No, Ohio sadly has become this red that I never foresaw it becoming. Oh I know, I know. Well, you know, they, they the slogan for Ohio is the heart of it all and they just chose that because quite often the brain is missing. So, you know, it it just <laughs> kind of fits. I always think of Ohio as we're trying to go west and we gave up. Right, right, exactly. It's like, you know, an Ohioan is basically a Michigan person who isn't as well armed, basically. That's an Ohio person. That's true. There are a lot of guns in Michigan. Way too many. Yeah, I know. I know. There's, there's, there's you know, and I know in, in Ohio, you've got this weird thing, like around the cities, you have these incredibly... Uh, blue areas in the urban areas like Akron. I don't think a Republican has bothered running for mayor in Akron in the last 20 years. The Democratic primary pretty much decides it. And yet in between, say, Akron and Columbus, it's West Virginia. I mean, it's literally, you get, you, you get outside of the metropolitan areas and you are in Green Acres land. It's a very strange state. Well, I met you at Starwood many, many years yeah. back when it was still at Brushwood, which is in western New York. But later, it moved to southern Ohio, and people don't yeah. realize sometimes just how close Ohio is to West Virginia and how similar, like, the topography is and a lot of the people are. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, the way that we go to Starwood – from where we live in Ohio, we actually dip into West Virginia and then go back into Ohio because it's less turns and all highway and, and no back roads. So, uh, you know, Ohio is incredibly close to West Virginia. And, you know, and again, areas of Pennsylvania are the same way. You've got Pittsburgh on one end, Philadelphia on the other, and West Virginia in between. Uh, it, West Virginia is kind of like the I don't know. There must, I think there was this big diaspora at one point. As a matter of fact, I know that where I'm living right now in Barberton, there's a lot of people around here whose families come from West Virginia because this town was a one-tank trip from Wheeling back in the 1920s. So people would get in the car and drive until they ran out of gas and then find a job and settle there. And that's how Barberton <laughs> kind of got most of its people. You know, I, I'm not making fun of West Virginia, and we are not making fun of West Virginia. Uh, just for the oh, record, no. I, used, I used to live in rural western Virginia, about 45 minutes from the West Virginia border. Still friends with people from that area. It's a beautiful place. I really love it. I love the mountains especially. But also, like, my rootstock as an American is Appalachian. I mean, that's where my grandparents' relatives came from. I was looking through my grandmother's cookbook recently and i saw strange yeah. recipes and they're and they're strange because they're traditional appalachian recipes yeah exactly really. and 
Oh, oh, you know, and then, then there's like my my family background. I've got that Irish immigrant background going, uh, which really, you know, like right through the uh, the industrial area here in Ohio. So the only thing I think about my family though is that they were all drinkers. In fact, the whole the whole joke about what do you call an you know what do you call a glass of whiskey in each hand Irish handcuffs? My grandfather told me that joke when I was eight. So that's that's about the only ethnic thing about my family uh, that they were they, they were all drinkers. Although my dad's side of the family, uh, they came through uh, Louisiana. My great grandmother, one of my great grandmothers on my dad's side, never spoke English. She only spoke uh, French and Creole her entire life. So I, I'm not that far away from immigrants in my own family. I know like nothing about like really about my family's history. All I know is what I've really read in my grandmother's cookbook and I'm just like such an American, but we don't want to just talk about uh, family genetics and Appalachian oh, yeah. stuff. I mean, we could, we could also talk about heavy metal for probably about four hours. However, <laughs> not going to, not going to do that. Don't have the licenses to play it uh, though. Some blood ceremony as intro music would be great if any of the members of that band listen to this show. Please get in touch with me. That would be really great. But I want to talk about some of the things that you have done, which I think are pretty extraordinary, especially Dark of Moon. And I will admit that I did not watch your movie for many years because I had people tell me that it was not a good movie. And and I and I think I made a mistake because I I really loved it just because I love the references in it to Gerald Gardner and Doreen Valiente and how you know it really is about someone in some ways sort of joining a coven that's a big part of the film so I want to know about right. what is the inspiration for the film what was it like writing a movie versus writing a book and and then I want to talk about how you filmed the movie and things. I know it's it's eight years old. It's probably old news in your world, but we've never really specifically ah. spoken about it. Before. So I want to get into that. Well, I mean, that was a that was a very unique experience, and definitely, you know, film is something I'm not done with yet. I uh, you know I've always looked for a way of you know getting my stories to the world, and at one point, like years ago. Uh, we were looking through, you know, just ways of trying to use my abilities to write uh, to get me somewhere. And my wife actually found an ad for a local producer looking for writers for an independent TV show he wanted to make. And I wound up getting uh, me and one other person were the writers for that show. And I learned a lot. And the thing is, is that I had a problem early on in writing fiction. Growing up, I had been reading a lot of stuff like Stephen King and Anne Rice and stuff where there was just such incredible minute descriptions. You know, they'd spend pages describing a scene. And I I found out I don't really resonate well with that kind of writing because I could never finish a novel. I would get bored halfway through and just stop. Uh, but when I found screenplays, you know, all of my strengths like character, plotting, dialogue, that's all a screenplay is you don't really go into a whole lot of description because you're wasting your time if you do that as a, as a screenwriter. Uh, you, ultimately, the director and the, uh, 
cinematographer and any art directors, they're going to decide how things look. Uh, so I really found that I, I worked well in screenplay formats. My problem was, though, is that I would put a lot of work into crafting these screenplays, especially working in romantic comedy, uh, only to hand it over to a director who would just completely screw it up. I mean, just massacre things. And so, you know, there's that, there's that, old, uh, there's that old adage that if you want something done your way, uh, do it yourself. So I decided to do that. I wrote a screenplay with independent production in mind. And let me tell you, if anybody out there ever wants to make a movie, definitely write a script with your budget in mind. Because I've seen a lot of people write screenplays, and it would be like just ridiculously expensive to shoot it, and they never get done. Uh, I wrote a I wrote a movie thinking, how can I make this cheaply? Let's let's set this in people's homes. Let's set this in locations that I have easy access to. Uh, I actually nailed down on my locations before I wrote those scenes. So there's a scene where you have a pagan activist group having a meeting. And for a lot of people I know, that's their favorite scene in the movie because it resembles something that so many of us have been through so many times before, which is trying to herd cats and get a bunch of pagans together to make an event happen. Uh, that We shot that we shot that at a local pagan shop and I went and I talked to the owner and said, look, I'm going to make a movie. I want to shoot some scenes here. You know, can I get some advanced permission to know I won't have a hard time? And once I got the permission, I wrote the scenes. I have a whole segment that I uh, shot at Ian Corrigan and Leah Falls land in Northeast Ohio at Tradara. And right. I called Ian up and I said, Hey, I'm going to make a movie. I want to write some scenes in Sedimentradara. Will I be able to shoot there? I nailed them all down early. And then I wrote the film, and, you know, I just did it. Um, I took a lot of inspiration from Kevin Smith. He was a big influence at the time. Uh, there's a lot of cursing in the movie. People have co called it Clerks in a Coven because I was heavily influenced by Kevin Smith at the time. Um, and, but that's also you know, how people I just talk, right? I mean, people cuss a lot. Exactly. Now. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, when I was casting the film, um, Angelia, who wound up playing Sammy in the film, uh, now she's Angelia Green. She was Angelia DeLuca back then. Uh, she was saying that she read the screenplay that I sent her and she instantly resonated with it because she had had the exact same arguments with her friends about... Um, I don't know, let, let me ask you on your show, what's your policy on swearing on the air? You can Do you fucking really care about as much as... You can fucking cuss okay. as you want on this show. Well, I always like to check. Uh, and, well, you know, the, the whole the whole routine about how fuck isn't really a bad word anymore just through sheer overuse. And well, she said that she had been having that exact same argument with one of her friends a few weeks before she had ever read my screenplay. So it was I, I kind of lucked out. I wound up getting to cast people who were kind of similar to their characters as it was. But I just went step by step. I... I'm always one of these people who listens to every single director's commentary on every DVD I ever buy. And when you listen to the director's commentaries by people like Kevin Smith or Richard Linklater, who did movies like Slacker and that kind of stuff, like the really hardcore nineties, you know, bootstrap filmmaking, guerrilla filmmaking type stuff, you can learn a lot. And I just went step by step. I put out notices. I cast people uh, let me tell you one thing that really helped in Ohio. 
I was casting a movie that wasn't a horror movie. So I had my pick of some really, really incredibly talented actors and crew members because that's all people make around here are horror movies. If people want something on the resume that doesn't have blood, zombie, or death in the title, it's really hard. So, uh, and, and I just shot the damn thing, and I just didn't let anybody tell me I couldn't do it. Uh, everybody pitched in. I wound up spending a total of about $500 on food to feed people uh, over the, the length of the movie, and uh, we just did everything digitally. And, uh, you know, I, I wound up putting the CD, uh, the DVD cover together myself for a short time. We even had a soundtrack CD because I found an Australian independent progressive hard rock label that wanted to promote their stuff. So they just flooded me with songs that I could use. Uh, it's just incredible. You know, it, it, when you make a movie, it's incredible how many people want to pitch in, especially if you're doing something that people have never, never seen before that really helps too. So the people in the film are not necessarily all pagans. We had, okay. We had uh, one or two pagans that had speaking roles. Uh, most of the pagan speaking roles were do- during the Druid ritual sequence when right. we had Ian Corgan and Leah fall and uh, uh, Steph Gooch from Stone Creek Grove. They all had, uh, speaking scenes in there. One of the women in the uh, in the pagan activist group meeting scene, the one who played Freya, uh, she Meredith Holland, she was also pagan. But most of the people in the film were not pagan, had never done this stuff before. When I was shooting the opening credit sequence and everybody had to like trace the pentagrams in the air, I was standing behind the camera conducting people like choreographing them because we were shooting that part without sound so i'm like down and to the left up and to the right it was hilarious it was like wicked broadway it was hilarious um but it was it was a lot of fun it, it was also kind of funny too because i had the the scene where everybody gets really stoned and one of my cast members had never smoked weed before so of course we had to corrupt her uh, and uh, so she, could, she was kind of a method actor. She wanted to understand what she was going through. So I was going to make that method acting at its finest. So this you oh, yeah. did this before, like Patreon and, and those sort of services. How did you finance yeah. all that? Well, one of the things that really helped was the fact that I was doing something like my cinematographer. She is incredibly talented and um, she wound up buying her own videotape to make this because she believed in the project. My cast members went out and bought their own clothes. Again, the, some of these folks had been working in movies for years in the area. And for example, my one star, uh, Roger Connors, uh, this was the first movie he's ever acted in where his character survived till the end credits. Literally <laughs> that is how, that is how few choices that actors in North, Northeast Ohio have. So the fact that I was doing a romantic comedy, uh, that just made everybody believe in it and everybody pitched in. We quite often would have these potlucks uh, when we shot because I might make a big old pot of pasta, but if they wanted to eat something more interesting, they'd bring it. And uh, everybody just pitched in together. Like I said, I spent probably a total of about, over a one-month period 
on uh, food, and that was about it. Um, that was my total cost to make the movie. Because uh, my my cinematographer, she directs. She to get everybody. She, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, nobody got paid. I mean, everybody was doing this for free because, again, it was their only chance. I mean, I one of one of the other actors, Rob Yeager, uh, he is still a working actor, and he said that, you know, the film he did with me and another film that he did that I didn't direct but I wrote are again two of the only movies he's ever been in where nobody died. Uh, so, and there's actually uh, another movie that I've written that's on Amazon Prime Video called Quarterbit that has kind of the same dialogue style. And again, I've got people in there who they say, you know, this is the first time I, my character ever lived to the end of a movie. So doing something completely different really, really, really can help because it gets people enthused about the project. Do people ever get your movie confused with Transformers Dark of the Moon? Oh, my God. When we were shooting this movie, we found out halfway through that that's what the Michael Bay movie is going to be. So for a while we had a joke. Uh, we had signs up around the set that said, Michael Bay is a thieving bastard uh, and that kind of stuff. And we joke about it. I, I even did a Michael Bay style Dark of Moon movie poster where everything was blowing up. Literally everything was blowing up. So, um, but yeah, it makes it kind of hard to search for it on Amazon, tell you the truth. Uh, I wind up selling more copies myself than I do uh, over Amazon, even though I put it out through Amazon through Create Space. But uh, now that I'm now that I'm selling some different books going here, I'm, the algorithms are starting to tie my stuff together a little more, so it's a little easier to find. You got to get that author page on Amazon all put together. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm working on that. I've been I've been busting my ass. I wound up because of uh, life stuff intervening. I lost about eight months off of work for my writing and publishing schedule. So now I'm playing catch up. I actually just finished my first draft of my latest work in progress today, which is book two in the Sorceress Saga, an urban fantasy series that I'm currently in the process of writing and producing. I've got one book out in that series right now. And uh, I'm also talking to a publisher about publishing a series of pagan holiday stories uh, based around a particular pagan family. And uh, I'm going to be working on that over the next year. We're going to start publishing those uh, December of 2021. Uh, the novella A Solstice Gift is going to be coming out about a year from now. And I've got some stuff going on. I, I just, yeah, I know i got to get the author page uh, done on Amazon. I've got to update my talismang.com page. I've got to do stuff on my Facebook page. Uh, it gets really bad. I wind up uh, spending way too much time on Twitter when I'm not writing. And uh, so that, that's the eternal struggle for any writer, though. You know, we, we could get everything done way ahead of schedule if we didn't have the damned internet uh, to distract us. It's true. Like, I know when I sit down and I'm like, start looking at something, then I'm like, well, I'll start today's book writing at one thirty now instead of one o'clock. You know, you know, you just keep pushing right. things back. It, it it really can be such a like time suck. But this year, we've had you know multiple issues. I think as creative people having to to write and do things, mostly because of COVID 
but also because right. of the election. You're pretty outspoken on social media, frankly. <laughs> uh, that's putting it lightly. Have you yeah. ever lost, you know, somebody who was a reader or liked you from workshops or whatever else? Have you ever lost somebody because of being an outspoken liberal? Well, you know, one thing that when I when I decided to shift uh, a couple of years ago, I made the decision that I was going to go a little more mainstream. I wasn't going to do such niche things because the first novel I wrote was a Wiccan romance novel set in a fictional Gardnerian coven. Actually, the Gardnerian coven that Zeke leaves his coven to go and join in Dark of Moon, uh, the uh, romance novel Imperfect Love is based around that Gardnerian coven. So I was doing niche upon niche upon niche. I decided to go a little more mainstream and work in the urban fantasy realm. But when I decided to do that, I kind of locked my Facebook down a little bit. Nobody can really see my stuff anymore unless they're friends with me. And I slashed about 3,000 people off of my friends list when I did that. Uh, just be, you know, and I, and I tell people these days, oh, go, go and like my author page on Facebook. Uh, because, and I've always told people that. I've told people that at my workshops. I say, listen, my personal Facebook is personal. I get very political. I'm uh, very, very strong opinions. If all you want to do is read about stuff I'm doing in the pagan world or writing or movies or music, like my, my author page on Facebook. I'll post everything there. Um, and, you know, the weird thing, though, is that I hang out on Twitter a lot, but on Twitter – I'm hanging out with the author community. I'm hanging out with the writer's community. We never talk politics on Twitter. And on Twitter, I am known as this little ray of sunshine who is just always up and positive and boosting and up with people. And I'm just like, yeah, and if my Facebook friends could see me, they wouldn't fucking recognize me. But uh, <laughs> I, I did lock things down. I find Twitter to be a little bit so much nicer. I find pagan Twitter yeah. to be so much nicer than Facebook, right? I'm not alone oh. there, I don't think. Oh, not at all. Well, you know, pagan Twitter, though, you've got incredible people. I mean, we don't, you know, we we don't just have, like, you know, our Gardnerian friends like you and Thorn Mooney and Deb Lip, but then we also have, you know, uh, Laura Tempest-Sackroff is on Twitter. Uh, you know, uh, Lord Alexian is on uh, pagan Twitter. I mean, there are just some really, really cool people to hang out with on Pagan Twitter. It is. So one of the things I need to ask you about is you mentioned Gardnerian covens a couple of times. It's a it's a recurring theme in the film, but you're not a Gardnerian, right. are you? No, I'm not. I'm not a Gardnerian. I used to play one on IRC chat back in the day when my old undernet uh, Wicca chat room handle was old Gerald. Uh uh, back in 95, back in the Stone Ages. Uh, but no, I'm not a Gardnerian. I've been, I've, you know, I, I work in a tradition that uh, I've heard is a Gardnerian offshoot. I haven't definitely uh, traced the lineage at all. I know that it, it, it's not Gardnerian. Uh, there's a definite point, even in the expressed history of the tradition that was given to me, where you know, they're like, okay, we've changed this enough that we can't call it Gardnerian anymore, uh, which is a very honest thing to do. I will give kudos to uh, the folks back in the 70s who were at least honest enough to say that. Um, but I've always been fascinated with British traditional Wicca. And, 
the funny thing is, and this is a this is a story I love to tell my friends. Occasionally, when I'm talking, like, okay, folks out in the listening land, uh, I really like to go to convocation in Michigan. And one of the fun things I like to do is hang out with my good pal Jason Mankey when I'm at convocation in Michigan. But when we're hanging out and talking, one of my favorite things to do is to throw out some little reference, some little piece of information, something that I'm not supposed to know, and then just watch Jason, like, twitch a little bit internally. Like, how does he know that? Uh, And usually I just say it's because gardenerians are like druids. They both like single malt scotch. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's like uh, I've always hung around the scene. I've, I've always enjoyed hanging around with Brit Trad people more than the eclectics. And, you know, it, it, it's just uh, something that I've studied relentlessly for many, many years. And I've kind of lucked into some stuff that, again, I know I'm not supposed to know. But that's why I don't tell anybody else. I just keep that information in my head and just, you know, kind of take the personal satisfaction uh, from knowing it. But, I, you know, you, you do notice that if you read my, uh, my romance novel, uh, In Perfect Love, which is the quasi-sequel to Dark of Moon, uh, yes, I have people within a Gardnerian coven, but I never depict any oath-bound ritual. The only rituals depicted in the book are outer court stuff that has no oath-bound material, or it's exploratory rituals between two people, which, again, are not using any oath-bound material. I was very, very careful, uh, you know, even the stuff that, you know, you can read on sacredtext.org. It's like still, you know, this, I'm going to respect the fact that this is not stuff that is meant for public consumption, and I didn't utilize it in the art. I I, I kind of just, you know, I worked around it. So it's funny, I do though, try to be respectful. Yeah. Funny, though, when you bring up convocation and we're sitting in a room. Yeah. And it's probably mostly Gardnerians in the room that I'm sitting in at convocation. Yeah. And you come in and you start talking and then you leave. And then everyone says, who is he? Is, is he one of us? Why is he talking so much to us? Why did he just wink at you when he said that? What is going on? So you attract more than just my attention sometimes at convocation. I'm just going to throw that out there, do with it as you will. But the Gardnerian <laughs> police cool. are all around. We are always there. We are always watching. We are, oh, yeah. we are ever vigilant oh, yeah. about our tradition. Yeah. Are you are you so kidding? You, for years, I would, no, just for years, I've been on uh, Aiden Kelly's old Gardnerians all list. And uh, it's so funny because when, when I was talking to Deb Lip at Starwood one time, I said, you know, it's like there's like a gazillion people on this list and the same 10 people are doing all the talking. And she said, because a lot of the other people on the list are us old pro uh, priests and priestesses who are there under other names just to keep an eye on Aiden to make sure he's not pissing us off again. Uh, so, Yeah, I would assume that's most of them. Yeah, exactly. You know, I don't want to just talk about gardenary politics because I don't think it applies. Like most people have no idea. And don't care and shouldn't really, but it it is like any tradition. And then the things all sort of around the tradition, they all have sort of minefields attached to them for for good or for ill. And Gardnerian Wicca, the oldest Wicca in the United States and, you know, in the UK too, for that matter, has more than anything else. 
other than the fairy tradition, which is not Wicca, but boy, does it have lots and lots of, of minefields. <laughs> if you really want to upset somebody, oh. look, in, look into fairy and then do some winking at those folks. Oh God! Or, or uh, you know, for you know, or you could do what I did and go into an Alexandrian group and uh, ask them uh, how they re- how they relate to the Alexandrian origin story these days, and uh, watch the monocles pop and the veins start exploding out of people's heads for the audacity of uh, suggesting that Queen Maxine has like you know. Anything you know? Any other way of looking at things other than the traditional party line? It was, uh, it was a. Re- you want to talk about a minefield? Okay, I mean, I could. You could go around and make a bunch of uh, oath-bound jokes around gardenerians, and you're not going to get as many pissed-off reactions as you do, uh, you know, around Alexandrians questioning what Maxine is telling them these days. So. I mean, Maxine's a lovely person. I've interacted with her multiple times online. It's the people who are around her who can get, shall we say, fairly vigilant. But that's uh, another matter altogether. (laughs) Maxine Sanders is one of those people who have friended me on Facebook, which, you know, is not. You have like almost 5,000 Facebook friends or whatever. It's not this huge badge of honor necessarily to be friends by somebody. But to have Maxine Sanders... And Silver Ravenwolf and Janet Farrar send me friend requests were three of the best moments of my life not related to Ari or Pittsburgh Steeler football. I mean, it's, that's very high praise coming from me. It was a big deal. You know, I mean, Maxine to me is like this mythical figure from out of the mists, you know, of late oh, 1960s, yeah. early 1970s Wicca. And sometimes we forget that those periods of time are not so long ago that everyone is gone from them. I mean, Patricia Crowther is still alive in England, who was initiated by Gerald Gardner and was one of the first public modern witches. You know, it's like living history for us in a lot of ways still. And I think people overlook that. You're a history nerd like me, I think. Oh, I'm a hardcore history nerd. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hardcore history nerd. One of the things that comes up a lot when discussing Wicca, especially in the last 10 years, is, you know, you have Triumph of the Moon, not Dark of Moon, Triumph of the Moon, the Ronald Hutton book that came out in 1999, which explored Wicca's origins. You had work by Philip Heselton, which came out in the years after that. Philip Heselton is one of my absolute favorite authors, yes. I, I love Philip's work. The uh, the latest book though, I I just I'm always honest with my with my listeners and people who read me online it was not my it was not my favorite of his books, but do you think the mystery has been taken out of Wicca and that is why people are you know more called to things like traditional witchcraft today that we've researched this tradition so much that we've taken out the mystery so to speak. Yeah, I really don't think so because I've noticed these things tend to run in cycles. Uh, And the one thing that keeps uh, people interested in the older trads is the fact that they, you know, the one thing that so much of the modern neo-pagan world has not been able to achieve 
longevity. And, uh, you know, when you think about it, there are more Gardnerians now than there have been at any point in modern history. Uh, It's just that there are so many more other types of pagans. They don't seem to be as dominant of a trad as they used to be. But I really notice these things run in cycles where people will go for a few years chasing the flavor of the month. But then I always get people saying like, oh, well, you know, what's a, what's a book I'd, I, I could read if I wanted to learn more about these older trads or these, these uh, more established ways of doing things. These things run in cycles back and forth. So, I mean, I myself have gone through multiple cycles in my life, paganism-wise. I'm still identified as a Wiccan, but I do a lot of work with the Druids these days. Uh, I kind of consider myself a, a Wiccan Druid or a Druidic Wiccan. I uh, sometimes will make an altar with a fire well and tree on it. I just, one of these days, I'll take a picture of it just so I can make the you know, the, you know, the hardcore stick in the ass traditionalists start getting twitchy. Uh, but, uh, you know, everything runs in cycles. And I, I think that really that I wouldn't be surprised if there's a huge, like, Brit trad renaissance in five years. Again, just the, when people try the flavor of the month and it just kind of collapses, you know, it's like the stuff that has longevity t- can attract people. But the nice thing is, is that unlike in the 70s or even the early 80s, when a Gardnerian coven might be the only game in town. And so you get everybody trying to join, no matter how suitable they were or not. Uh, Nowadays, you have so many choices that only the people who are really resonant with the old trads really need to bother anymore. So I think that the eclectic explosion of things ultimately makes the trad stronger because the people who are there are there because they want to be there, not because it's the only thing they could do, which really was the case in the seventies in a lot of areas. It really was, you know, one of the things that I read uh, from certain bloggers and, you know, is, you know, all of these traditions are dying and, you know, they're not going to be here in 20 years. And and then I think, you know, something, there are probably more Gardnerians today than ever before, you know, things, things change. Maybe you don't see it as much, but it's there and it's still around. And I always find right. that thing sort of frustrating when somebody tells me that my tradition is getting ready to go belly up. Are you kidding? People have been predicting the death of the old trads uh, pretty much since when they started. Uh, if you go back and take a look at some of the early uh, pogroms against uh, the Gardnerians in the British occultist scene uh, with the people like Charles Cardell, uh, or the uh, the vile things said by Alex Sanders about, or Robert Cochran, especially Robert Cochran was really nasty towards Gardnerians. Uh, ever since Wicca started, people have been predicting that Gardnerian Wicca is going to die. Alexandrian Wicca is going to die. But, you know, these, these, they're, they're proving to be a little bit more resilient. Uh, I think a lot of people make these predictions because it's, it's wishful thinking. Uh, because, you know, and for whatever reason, I don't understand why. Some people just don't like other people to have nice things. But uh, I think the mystery is still there, though, because of the fact that, you know, and the thing I try to get across to people when they say, oh, well, what about the fact that these old Gardnerian rituals were leaked? And it's like, look, I've talked to enough Gardnerians. I can tell you that the quickest way to tell a Fraudnerian cover, Fraudnerian being, of course, phony Gardnerian, 
if you go to, if you are quote unquote initiated and go to their rituals and they're exactly the way that Doreen Valiente told Jenna and Stuart Fair to publish them in the witch's way and not a word has been changed, then you know that these people are just copying out of a book because Gardneri and Wicca, any of the trash, are living traditions. Individual lines grow and evolve along their own way. Individual covens may evolve along their own way. They may try all kinds of new things. They just don't throw any of the old stuff out. And uh, that's, that's the kind of stuff that keeps this stuff current and vital and serving the needs of the people who come to them. It's not uh, something where people etch it in stone and it can never, ever change. Gardner himself had three major different books of shadows he worked out of in his lifetime. So, you know, it's, it's, it, there, there, there's, there's a lot more to it than just, you know, uh, nudity and uh, purification rights. So, <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny any of those things, of course. But, you know, one of the things yeah. about – but one of the things about Wicca, and you make a good point, is these are living traditions. They're not stuck in 1954 or 1959 or something like that. They're progressing. They're moving forward. And as Wiccan – and, you know, that is what my spirituality is, and I know religion seems to be a bad word in the greater pagan community these days – but to me, Wicca has always been my religious faith since I was 21 years old. So it's been a long time now. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's – well, Wicca is just about that male-female binary. And I'm like, no, that's not what it is to me. It's not what it is to lots right. of people. It has progressed beyond such limited understandings of human nature. And to me, my path is this inclusive thing where anyone on – the spectrum of gender can be a part of what we do, no matter how they identify, you know, male, female, or oh, yeah. not at all. And it's a really hard thing to get through people's heads sometimes that these traditions can't evolve. Oh, let me tell you, that, that's one of the things I love is that on Pagan Twitter, uh, Deborah Lip does Ask a Witch Wednesdays, where she will literally say, ask me anything, and she will give really good sound reasoned answers and i decided to throw out there saying hey what about trans inclusivity and she just said listen if the goddess is telling this person that they are a man they are a woman and they're hearing that within themselves she's like who am i to say something different uh it's kind of funny in the 21st century who could have predicted this but you know the gardenerians are the progressive ones and the old California uh, exclusionary feminists are the turfy ones. So it's like, you know, the right wing, the right wing gets Z Budapest and we get, uh, we get Dory Valiente on the left. I just think that that's a a beautiful outcome. (laughs) (laughs) It's not what would have been expected 25 years ago. That's for sure. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, Again, you know, it's just like, you know, the more things change, you know, it's like things go on, they evolve. And now we're starting to see real generational divides in paganism, real generational divides in witchcraft, where, you know, for so long, baby boomers really controlled things. Uh, You know, us Gen Xers, you know, uh, there were a lot of us who were kind of like, yeah, you guys are kind of screwed. We're just going to have our covens and enjoy our things and you guys go and play in your sandbox. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, it's just, 
And a lot of the, the problems that we've had with the turfy tendencies, you can really see that as not so much an eclectic issue, but it's a generational issue. It's people who, you know, for, you know, a lot of us forget that the hippie era in the 60s were very progressive when it came to race. It was very progressive when it came to things like indigenous peoples and indigenous rights. When it came to the LGBTQ spectrum, the hippies weren't that great. You, were, you would just as likely get some dude freaking out at some guy making a pass at him who was at a Grateful Dead show than you would at a football game. I mean, so, you know, it's like, yeah, some of these people are from the hippie generation, but the hippies weren't 100% on everything. That's why the new generations have to come along and kick the ass of the old generations and say, I, you know, lead follower, get the fuck out of the way, which I also see happening in paganism. There's a new generation of people who are just really, you know, we're, we're kind of tearing down walls of separation in categories. There's a lot of people in my kids' generations who aren't identifying as gay or bi or whatever. They're pansexual. They're queer. Their attitude is, we don't care about biology. We care about the person. Well, there's a new generation of pagans and witches who are saying, we don't care about labels. We care about what works. And it's kind of interesting because that kind of reminds me of the attitude that a lot of American witches had back in the early and mid-70s when Gardnerian witchcraft was limited to the East and West Coast and people in the middle in the heartland had to put shit together any way they could. And all they cared about was, does it work? Kind of coming full circle. So it's, I think it's an interesting time. I'm very optimistic about the future. You're a Gen Xer. I'm a Gen Xer. We're sort of a generation that a lot of media doesn't think exists. Uh, you know, has it, do, you feel, do you feel like it's been hard to find a seat at the adult table as a Gen Xer over the years? <laughs> you know, I feel, I'm pushing 50. I'm getting close, and I still feel like it's yeah, I, at a lot of payment events. I just hit 50, okay? And it's like, it's it's weird to me because I was thinking, you know, that 50-year-olds need to be, like, responsible and shit. And yet I know what I've done at festival. You know what you've done at festival. Uh, it's not exactly what, what we done, thought I'm, of. I'm innocent. I am completely innocent. I just go yeah, back I, to the tent with Ari, and, and that's it. That's all I do. Right, and, and I've never seen some really weird-ass shit at some of the Dionysus Jim Morrison rituals either, no. but anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't know. It's like uh, I know that there's a lot of there, – there's, there's a certain – okay, one of the things that my wife and I have been involved in is trying to get some traction going on the Pagan Credit Union uh, project trying to get an actually federally accredited credit union that kind of services the pagan community. Uh, and we, you know, one of the biggest resistance I've seen is from the baby boom generation. Uh, so many of them have been damaged in witch wars and bitchcraft and shit like that over the years that they're, they just completely don't trust anybody. Uh, you, they could literally have, uh, you could literally have Hermes come down and swear that this is absolutely no bullshit and he should know because he, you know, really knows how to dish it out. And 
they still wouldn't trust it. You know, there's this incredibly paranoid thing, this paranoia against organization, this paranoia against hierarchy, against structure. But again, that's changing because now as Gen Xers are, you know, moving into positions of authority, or especially the millennials, uh, that's, you know, it's kind of like, well, why can't we have an organization? Why can't we get together and practice together and enjoy it? What if we don't want to reinvent our religion on our own every five years? What can we do? And then, you know, people like the Gardnerians or even Blue Star Wicca is still in existence or or even non-Wiccan groups like ADF. It's like, well, if you want something where you don't have to reinvent thing every five years, we've got some. Come try it out. Uh, I myself have kind of seen a renaissance in my own Wiccan practice because I've really enjoyed the devotional work that I've done as part of ADF. So I'm working that into my Wiccan practice too, which I actually think is kind of needed. I think there's been too much of a tendency in Wicca to see the gods as, you know, metaphysical ATMs and you only go and talk to them when you want something. Uh, And occasionally just saying, Hey, here's a little incense. Here's a little wine. Thanks for, you know, not completely fucking my life up. It kind of helps deepen things. So I'm kind of working that things in more as I go. And uh, I, I think, I hope to see more of that too. You're someone who seems to like groups and I'm of the opinion that I, I think long-term the pagan community is probably something that's going to be, you know, really more about individuals than groups. You know, I mean, I love practicing with a coven. Don't get me wrong. Right. I'm a terrible solitary and things, but you know, sometimes <laughs> I feel watching the trends that Wicca and witchcraft especially are going to be things that people do in the privacy of their home by themselves. Is is this a good development, a bad development? Well, I mean, it's certainly a sustainable development for one thing, because you don't really have to depend on the stability of a social structure. Uh, And I know a thing or two about that because the pagan community around the area that I grew up, I grew up in the Akron area in Northeast Ohio. And I've often said that if the Akron pagan community had one of those cheesy Hollywood pseudo Native American names, it would be doesn't play well with others. Because it's uh, it's an area that's so fucked up that it's not allowed to have its own pagan pride celebration because they fucked it up so severely in the early days of pagan pride. Uh, literally, it's it's the center of bitchcraft in the Great Lakes region, as far as I can tell. Um, so it's like, you know, so you know, groups you know groups can be kind of dicey sometimes, and individual stuff is more sustainable. I wouldn't be surprised though if we saw kind of like more of like a pod idea where you don't necessarily have to have a big coven with all this organization. But I always encourage people, you know, hey, get together with a couple of friends. Try it with other people. Because even if you still love being a solitary doing something, I always say every solitary should do group ritual and every person who's in groups should do solitary practice as well. It's two sides of a coin that give you different experiences and different perspective on things and they're good for different things and i wouldn't be surprised if you started seeing more like smaller groups two or three friends they're interested they'll all read out of the same books for a while maybe they'll practice and do rituals for three or four years before their own paths diverge too much and they wind up having to find other people of a like mind 
But I, you know, I, I've seen a little bit of movement towards, you know, these small two and three or maybe four, you know, friend circle type mini covens. And I think that's healthy too, because it gives people the opportunity to have someone else's shoulder to lean on. So you don't have to do everything yourself without necessarily having to deal with group dynamics and trying to fit somebody new into an established group, which can always be a dicey proposition. So again, you know, it's kind of like finding these new evolutionary paths to give people the same experiences. It feels like the pagan community is, there's going to be a big readjustment after COVID when that's over. I mean, it's going to be a year between live events, between groups really getting to meet, between people getting, you know, being able to meet new individuals. What do you think is going to be the long-term fallout of this year plus of witching and druiding in place? Well, I mean, I think one thing, uh, one thing that I would like to see more of, I would really like to see even once we can just do, say, the all the regular grove rites with Stone Creek Grove, which is a grove that has been kind of like my druidic home for a long time. Um, you know, Stone Creek Grove, we, you know, we're, my wife and I, we've been doing druidical for a long time. My wife has actually been involved in Stone Creek Grove since only a couple of years after their beginning. She was at, I think, Wellspring number two or three. Uh, she started mm-hmm. with Stone Creek in 92. Uh, So we know the ritual, and we've been going up to help put on the rituals that they've been streaming over the Internet for people who can't make it. Well, I would like to see that kind of thing continue. I'd like to see groups like uh, ADF or any of the other Wiccan or pagan groups that have been video, that have been live streaming rituals. I would like to see that continue even after the larger groups can meet again because there are always people who can't come because of health. They can't come because of transportation, but they still want to take part in something or to feel like they're taking part in something. And let me tell you something. The first time I ever did an online ritual, it was in a chat room. Okay. This is where people were typing out quarter calls. They were typing out quarter calls and to say, so mode it be, you put an exclamation mark in the chat room. Okay. So when you consider that we pulled off rituals doing that, Back in the 90s, you know, doing rituals over Zoom is like fucking Rolls Royce of online rituals, okay? But I'd like to see that kind of stuff continue just because, you know, it gives the larger community more of a chance to to see this stuff, to see how people do things, to see how groups operate together and all that. So, I, I do think when it comes to festivals especially, this is a thing that – bring that has shown that you can bring a festival into people's homes you know a lot of people are never going to go camp for a week and listen to 50 different speakers but being able to do that from you know your phone or your desktop computer or whatever is a big step forward and i hope that continues long term so we're almost out of time we've got about five minutes left we usually do about an hour on this show yeah, this has been this has been a fucking great conversation, my friend. I knew it would be easy to talk <laughs> to you, you, but you know you never you're never sure when you're just asking pagan questions whether you know that banter that you have in real life is going to translate to the show. This has been really great. I haven't gotten to half of the things I wanted to ask you, but you right. have been writing fantasy fiction, urban fantasy, 
uh, since February. Right. Well, your first book was published in February of this year, and the sequel is coming out soon. But you're self-publishing, which is really different from what I'm doing today, and you are really right. proud of the self-publishing. So, so tell me why you like self-publishing and why that works for you. Well, I like self-publishing for multiple reasons. For one thing, I can make the stories come out the way I want to. I understand that publishers have, you know, they're putting an investment into an author. They want to make sure they're going to not lose their shirts on it, so they don't want to get too out there or too weird. Uh, But one of the things I love about fantasy is that you can do all kinds of weird and out there stuff, and it's fantasy. You get away with it. Like, you get away with stuff in science fiction, social commentary stuff that you couldn't necessarily do as easily in other genres. So I got that freedom. I have the freedom to control the packaging. I mean, I spent $400 for the cover graphic for the sorceress because I wanted to make sure it was what I wanted. I had a clear vision in my head. Every cover of each book is going to be based on a tarot card. The sorceress was based on the magician. The next book, the witch is going to be based on the high priestess card of the tarot. So uh, I get to control all that. I get, and most importantly, I get to control pricing. All of my eBooks on Amazon cost $2.99. Uh, and that's the cost for the eBook. It doesn't matter if it's 300 or 700 pages, it's $2.99 for the eBook. So that way my readers can always read my stuff at an affordable price. And I don't have to worry about price bloat or anything like that. And I make $2 off of every ebook sold. So it's a royalty that most publishers can't match. Now, I am working with a traditional publisher to put out my cycle of pagan holiday family stories. Uh, but that's because it's a completely different genre that I'm working in there. And I'm going to be uh, pitching that to a different audience. So I'm going to work with the publisher to do the family story. And I'll keep the urban fantasy series uh, self-published. And there's paganism in the uh, urban fantasy series, too. I work uh, rituals directly out of ADF liturgy in The Sorceress. And in The Witch, I go back to my Wiccan roots and have some good old-fashioned Wiccan ritual in there, too. I'm, You know, you bring up, like, how much you make in royalties. And I'll tell you, as a Llewellyn author, I might make a dollar per book. You know, in a lot of yeah. ways, self-publishing can be a lot better because it is more lucrative in a lot of ways because you're keeping much, much more of what the, you know, of what people are spending. And also you're also able to charge so much less. You know, when I look at like the best sellers in witchcraft and then cry because, you know, my books are at the (laughs) way at the bottom, if they're even on the chart at all, you know, it's the dollar 99 Lisa Chamberlain book that's selling more than anything else. And Right. You know, I don't, I'm not going to say that it's a bad book. I don't know. It's probably fine. But, you know, you, you put your heart and soul into something, and because of price points, it can be that much more difficult for people to pick it up. So, yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm always fascinated by the differences between the two, and they seem to be closing in a lot of ways, I think. I mean, I don't think people look at self-published books with the negativity that they did 10, 15, 20 years ago. Well, I'll tell you, too, that if you're going to go through and be a traditionally published author, especially working fiction, uh, even if you're working, even if you're published by Simon & Schuster, you're still going to be responsible for most of the promotion for your first one or two books yourself. 
And my attitude is if, if I've got to put in the time and effort and my own resources into promoting the book myself, I'll just publish it myself too. But that's my attitude. I mean, other people, you know, they don't have the, the time uh, to learn how to do book layout. I mean, that's my least favorite part. I'm going to be laying out my new book in my Linux program. Uh, that takes hours and hours. It's a lot of work, and not everybody is necessarily going to be down for doing the work. But if you don't mind doing it, it's a great way of getting your stuff out there. Yeah, I'm too lazy. I want somebody else to do it, you know? <laughs> I, I am looking forward to letting somebody else – Oh, yeah. I, 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 I'm looking forward to letting somebody else do the work to put out a solstice gift next year. Uh, I'm just going to write it and send it in and let them do the work from there on out. So, Well, I'll have to have you back next year because, as most people know, I love talking about Yule. And, you know, oh, maybe, yeah. you know, yeah, hopefully I get an advanced copy of your book and I can, you know, read it in September or something or blurb it even earlier, whatever. I'm just going to throw that out there. We're, you don't well, Send it. You don't have to. I'm do going to be that, calling but, you know, out a bunch could. of people. I'm going to need a bunch of people to blurb it. So I'm going to be hitting up you. I'm going to be hitting up Thorn. I'm going to be calling Oberon. I'm going to be calling everybody. <laughs> That's good company. So you know, before we're done, if people <laughs> want to learn more about you and your projects, where should they go online? Well, one place you can go is on Twitter. My handle is Talison underscore G of course, with the at sign at the beginning of it. And also, I've got a website, uh, talisong.com. It looks like talisong.com, but it's talisong. Uh, it's always one word. And uh, I haven't updated it in a while, but you can get to buy uh, the Sorceress through there. Uh, and soon, uh, like I said, in January, I'm going to be coming out with book two, The Witch. Uh, and then uh, book three in April and uh, a whole I'm going to be putting out probably five titles next year, so there's going to be plenty uh, to uh, to talk about as we go. Jesus, I'm tired listening to you. This has been <laughs> really fun. This has been really great. Awesome. Um, I know I won't see you in February of this year, but hopefully maybe this summer out on the road, that would be really great. Uh, this has been oh, be a awesome. fantastic interview. This has been just really fun for me. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you invited me. I, You know, I've been doing – Desperate House Witches for like 10 years. I'm going to be on Desperate House Witches tomorrow night, actually, for my first Friday of the month political uh, talk. But it's nice to be able to talk about something other than how annoying the politicians have been this week. So, yeah. I tried to talk about Yule on Desperate House Witches. It just kept coming back to how terrible Trump is. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's hard it's hard to get away from politics over there sometimes. It is, and that's that. Well, that's that's what I go on there. I go on there to explain politics to people who don't understand it, and also to talk people down off the ledge to be like, "No, it's not that bad. Let me explain it to you." So, I always warn people though that if you don't understand politics, don't knock yourself out learning it because it doesn't make it any better when you understand it. It's still sad and pathetic, but in a different way. So it's still terrible. <laughs> Tell exactly. my friend this has been really fun. Thank you, and um, right, I hope that I have you on at least next December, if not before. All right. Well, party on, man. See you in the funny papers. All right. Uh, my guest tonight has been Taliesin, Talison Govanin. He is a really great guy. Check out his work. I'm Jason. This has been Witches, Whiskey, and Wit. Uh, thanks for listening. 
don't know who the guest will be next week, but I plan to be back to, uh, you know, light up your December anyways. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Good night.